Welcome to Over in Smith, an H.P. Lovecraft podcast where we read H.P. Lovecraft story uh, and release an audiobook if it isn't too boring or racist. My name is Art, and with me today is someone who finally got over her fear of Italians and went to that one area of town, Faith. I've eaten so much garlic bread. <laughs> yeah, keep I heard. Giving it to- I have so many carbs. I heard that if you eat enough garlic, the the uh, the Italians will stay away from you because they're allergic. Or is that vampires? <laughs> Same thing, really. <laughs> <laughs> Both are monstrosities that roam around at night, <laughs> especially in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's not much to recap, really. He just yeah. like. Looked at a place and it was just like, ooh, Italians live there. I can't go there. Then it took him like several months to walk he, over he, there. He learned that when you see something far away, if you get close to it, it gets bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing he learned. He learned he that was- it's it's different when you're looking at something up close than far away. Yeah. And yeah. now he's doing some urban exploring <laughs> in this abandoned church. Yeah, which is goth church, which goth not church. not like not there's to borrow a term from the British. There's no nonsing in this church, like with uh with um the Catholic. Yeah, you know, d- yeah. By the way, nonsing is also another word for buggering children. Yes. So that's what I was referring to. Yes. But nonsing is a really uh useful term that I wish we had over here in America. I know. Um. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, they just found it's like there's just an onk on the wall. I guess there's like a uh, Jesus and like some fishnet and a fishnet shirt also. Oh like, my you know, god, you, know. you can see his nipples. Well, you can see his nipples originally too. <laughs> it's just how it's sexier because it's through fishnets. <laughs> I was gonna say, this is why I don't go to church anymore. Too many nipples. <laughs> It's bad enough that the main boy in Christian church has his titties out. <laughs> All the time. But yeah, he was like, oh, the the cross, it looks like an Egyptian onk. It's like, yeah, because... Because it's goth church, of course. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, but yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's people being goth in the 90s. Of course you have an onk or two on you. Yeah. Didn't you read uh, the Sandman series death uh, yeah. <laughs> stories. Uh, but okay, well, let's get let's get here and let's get in this. Let's do it. The Haunter of the Dark, Part Two. In the rear vestry room, besides the asp, Blake found a rotting desk and a ceiling high shelves of mildewed, disintegrating books. For here, for the first time, he received a positive shock of objective horror, for the titles of those books told him much. They were black forbidden things, which most sane people have never even heard of, or only heard of in furtive, timorous whispers, the banned and dreaded repository of equivocal secrets and immemorial formulae, which had trickled down the stream of time from the days of man's youth. In the dim, fabulous days before man was, 
He had himself read many of them, a Latin version of the abhorred Necronomicon, the sinister Liber Ivanus, the infamous Cult de Gules of Comte de Lert, the Uasprischnikin Kulten of Von Juntz, an old Ludwig uh, Prince Hellish de Vermis Mysterie. Also, there was uh, a couple of uh, dog-eared uh, John the Homicidal Maniac and Lenore the Cute Little Dead Girl <laughs> on there, too. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Lenore. <laughs> yeah. I think I still have my copy. I think I still have my copy of both of those. And a late edition, I Love Halloween. Also, a late edition. Ooh. I Love Halloween uh, was one. I haven't read I haven't reread that one. I have a feeling it's very sexist, though. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What funny was the other stuff worked. I read? Oh, the big book of Squee? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I remember reading all of Lenore with my best friend in middle school. Shout out to you, Kelsey, for letting me do that. And she, because her middle name is Lenore. Yeah. And she's like, finally. My- is, she, is she a cute little dead girl as well? Uh, you know what? She is cute. Okay. I don't I don't think she's dead though. Okay. Well. But one day we all will be. It's <laughs> 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 really obtuse. <laughs> it sounded uh, much it sounded much funnier. <laughs> God. It was just- God, you fucking sound like I did when I was in middle school. I wanted to be okay. Here's the thing. Um, I think the most emo thing you can be, at least in the early or mid two thousands, early to mid two thousands, uh huh, is a is a poor little uh poor little brown kid who wanted to look like oh. the pale white kids. Oh, 100%. Uh, and have rich enough to be able to wear trip pants and and yes. stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's more emo. I had actual existential dread. Rooted in racism. They didn't have that. And uh, uh, religious trauma. Yeah. Because that would have been, actually, that would have been kind of, like, around the time I started getting, like, super into Jesus. And, uh, man, I can't get into this. That's sad. That's a sad part of my life. I can't get into it, though. I'm not going to. (laughs) You've only said snippets, and that's yeah. Enough. No, it's a bad part of my life. It turns out mental illness is is a bad thing to have when you're also <laughs> into hellfire brimstone stuff. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so I was the most I was the most goth of goths in my high school. I just couldn't look it. So, yeah. But on the inside, you were the gothest goth. Yeah, exactly. You were the most emo. But there were others he had known merely by reputation, or not at all. The narcotic manuscripts, the book of Dezayan, in a crumbling volume, in wholly unidentifiable characters, yet with a certain symbols and diagrams, shudderingly recognizable to the occult student. Clearly the lingering local rumors had not lied. This place had once been a seat of an evil older than all mankind and wider than the known universe. That's assuming a lot. Mm-hmm. What if they just like spooky stuff? Yeah. Yeah. They could just what like spooky just, stuff. Again, what if they're just gone? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> In the ruined desk was a small leather bound record book filled with entries and some odd cryptographic medium. 
The manuscript writing consisted of the common traditional symbols used today in astronomy and anciently in alchemy, astrology, and other dubious arts. The device of the sun, moon, planets, aspects, and zodiacal signs were massed in a solid page of text with divisions and paragraphing suggesting that each symbol answered to some alphabetical letter. In the hope of later solving the cryptogram, Blake bore off this volume in his coat pocket. Many of the great tomes on the shelf fascinated him utterly, and he felt tempted to borrow them at some later time. He wondered how they would have remained undisturbed for so long. Was he the first to conquer the clutching, pervasive fear which had for nearly 60 years protected this deserted place from visitors? Having now thoroughly explored the ground floor, Blake plowed again through the dust of the spectral nave to the front vestibule, where he had seen a door and staircase, presumably leading up to the blackened tower and steeple, objects so long familiar to him at a distance. The ascent was a choking experience, for dust lay thick, while the spiders had done their worst in this constricted space. The staircase was a spiral with high, narrow wooden treads, and now and then Blake passed through a clouded window, looking dizzily out over the city. Though he had seen no ropes below, he expected to find a bell or a peal of bells in the tower whose narrows, louvre, boarded, lancet windows his field glass had studied so often. Here he was doomed to disappointment, for when he attained the top of the stairs, he found the chamber vacant of chimes and clearly devoted to vastly different purposes now, there's like a sex swing and everything up there it's <laughs> it's a whole thing some harnesses yeah. <laughs> yeah they really like looking over the city while just while someone's getting around it's really it's you know it's fun some cat ears you know yeah i mean of course there's cat ears of course um, yeah a must for any sex room the room, about 15 feet square, was faintly lighted by the four lancet windows, one on each side, which were glazed within their screening of decay louvre boards. These had been further fitted with tight, opaque screens, but the latter were so largely rotted away. In the center of the dust-laden floor rose a curious angled stone pillar, some four feet in height. And two, and two in average diameter, covered on each side with a bizarre, crudely incised and wholly unrecognizable hieroglyphs. On this pillar rested a metal box of peculiarly asymmetrical form, its hinged lid thrown back, and its interior holding what looked like beneath the decade-deep dust to be an egg-shaped or a regularly spherical object of some four inches through. Around the pillar in a rough circle were seven high-backed gothic chairs, still largely intact, while behind them, ranging along the, the dark panel walls, were seven colossal images of crumbling, black-painted plaster, resembling more than anything else the cryptical, craven megaliths of mysterious Easter Island. In one corner of the cobwebbed chamber, a ladder was built into the wall leading up to the closed trap door of the windowless steeple above. As Blake grew accustomed to the feeble light, 
he noticed an odd baz relief on the strange open box of yellowish metal. Approaching, he tried to clear the dust away with his hands and handkerchief, and saw that the figures were of monstrous and utterly alien kind, depicting entities which, though seemingly alive, resembled no known life form ever evolved on this planet. The four-inch seeming sphere turned out to be a near-black, red-striated polyhedron with many irregular flat surfaces, either a very remarkable crystal of some sort or an artificial object of carved and highly polished mineral matters. It did not touch the bottom of the box, but was held suspended by a mean of metal band around its center with seven queerly designed supports extending horizontally to the angles of the box inner wall near the top. This stone, once exposed, exerted upon Blake an almost alarming fascination. He could scarcely tear his eyes away from it, and he looked at its glistening surfaces. He almost fancied it was he almost fancied it was transparent, with half-formed worlds of wonder within. And to his mind floated pictures of alien orbs with great stone towers and other orbs which with titan mountains and no mark of life, and still remoter spaces where only a stirring and vague blackness told of presence, of consciousness and will. When he did look away, it was a notice, a somewhat singular mound of dust in the far corner near the ladder to the steeple. Just why it took his attention, he could not tell. But something in its contours carried a message to his unconscious mind. Plowing towards it and brushing aside the hanging cobwebs as he went, he began to discern something grim about it. Hand and handkerchief soon revealed the truth. Blake gasped with a baffling mixture of emotions. It was a human skeleton. It must have been there for a very long time. The clothing was in shreds, but some buttons and fragments of cloth bespoke a man's gray suit. There was other bits of evidence. Shoes, metal clasp, huge buttons for round cuffs, a stick pin of a bygone pattern, and a reporter's badge with the name of Old Providence Telegram and a crumbling leather pocketbook. Blake examined the latter with care, finding within it several bills of an antiquated issue, a celluloid advertising calendar for 1893, some cards with the name Edwin M. Lillybridge, and a paper covered with penciled memoranda. This paper held much of a puzzling nature, and Blake read it carefully at the dim westward window. Its disjointed text included such phrases as the following. And uh, before we get to that part, um, uh, there's a fun fact. Uh, so... The Providence Evening Telegram was founded in 1880. The Sunday Telegraph was a companion newspaper. In 1906, the Telegraph began, became the Evening Tribune and the Telegraph. And eventually, Telegraph, a portion of the name was dropped. So, yeah, oh. became the Evening Tribune. Professor Enoch Bowen, home from Egypt, May 1844. Buys old free will church in July. 
his archaeological work and studies in occult well known. Dr. Drown, a Fourth Baptist, warns against starry wisdom in sermon, December 29, 1844. Congregation 97 by end of 45. 1846. Three disappearances. First mention of shining trapezohedron. Seven disappearances. 1848. Stories of blood sacrifice begin. Investigation 1853 comes to nothing. Stories of sounds. Father O'Malley tells of devil worship with box found in great Egyptian ruins. Says they call up something that can't exist in light. Flees a little light and banished by strong light. Then has to be summoned again. Got this from deathbed confession of Francis X. Feeney, who had joined Starry Wisdom in 49. These people say the shining trapezohedron shews them heaven and other worlds. That the haunter of the dark tells them secrets in some way. <gasps> Story of Oren B. Eddy, 1857. They call it up by gazing at the crystal and have a secret language of their own. 200 or more in Congregation, 1863, exclusive of men at front. Irish Boys Mob Church in 1869 after Patrick Reagan's disappearance. Veiled article in J. March 14th, 72. But people don't talk about it. Seven disappearances in 1867. Secret committee calls on Mayor Doyle. Action promise February 1877. Church closes in April. Gang Federal Hill Boys threaten Dr. Blank and Vestryman in May. 181 persons leave city before end of 77. Mention no names. Ghost stories begin around 1880. Try to ascertain truth of report that no human being has entered church since 1877. Ask Lanigan for photograph of place taken 1851. <coughs> so some spooky stuff happened. I'm liking this a lot so far. Me too. Yeah. Also, a trapezohedron? Hell yeah. An underrated, yeah. An underrated shape if there ever was one. <laughs> I bet. I bet it has some like real... Uh, I can't. I can't come up with a joke about trap music. Right Everybody's now. like, "Oh, decadohedrons! Ooh, they're so cool." Well, bitch, guess what? Other things exist. Restoring the paper to the pocketbook and placing the latter in his coat, Blake turned to look down at the skeleton in the dust. The implications of the notes were clear, and could be no doubt that this man had come to the deserted edifice. 42 years before, in a quest of the new paper, of a newspaper sensation which no one else had been bold enough to attempt. Perhaps no one else had known of his plan. Who could tell? But he had never returned to his paper. Really? Oh, I thought what? he did. I thought, <laughs> I thought he did. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I bet uh, he went Don't back. skeletons walk around in your world? <laughs> uh... <laughs> This is just his home. <laughs> so <laughs> He just lives here in the goth church. The aesthetic all makes sense. <laughs> hey, 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 Art, if you feel like it, uh, try to get that one. I think you should leave bit where uh, the John where the Johnny Cash uh, sound alike has a backup singer that keeps on singing about skeletons and their bones or money. Uh, <laughs> right here. Okay. 
The bones are their money, so are the worms. They pull your hair off, but not out to turn into a man and have another chance at life. But if they pull it out, they turn to bones. I mean, skeletons walk around all the time in our world. They just are usually wearing a meat suit of some kind. Exactly. Yeah. Had some bravely suppressed fear arisen to overcome him and bring on a sudden heart failure, Blake's stooped over the gleaming bones and noted their particular state. Some of them were badly scattered, and a few seemed oddly dissolved at the end. Others were strangely yellowed, with a vague suggestion of charring. This charring extended to some of the fragments of clothing. The skull was in a particular state, stained yellow, and with a charred aperture on the top, as if some acid had eaten through the solid bone. What had happened to the skeleton during its four decades of silent entombment here, Blake could not imagine. Before he realized it, he was looking at the stone again, and letting its curious influence call up a nebulous pageantry. He saw possessions. He saw processions of robed hooded figures whose outlines were not human, and looked on endless leagues of desert, lined with carved sky-reaching monoliths. He saw towers and walls and nighted depths under the sea and vortices of space where wisps of black mist floated more than the shimmering of cold purple haze, and vortices of space where wisps of black mist floated, floated before him thin shimmerings of, of cold purple haze. And beyond all else, he glimpsed an infinite gulf of darkness, where solid and semi-solid forms were known only by their windy stirrings and cloudy patterns of force, seemed to superimpose order on chaos and hold forth a key to all of the paradoxes and arcana of the worlds we know. Then all at once the spell was broken by an excess of gnawing and determinate fear. Blake choked and turned away from the stone, curious of some formless alien presence close to him, watching with horrible intent. He felt an entanglement with something, something else which was not in the stone, but which had looked through it at him, something which would ceaselessly follow him with a cognition that was not physical sight. Plainly, the place was getting on his nerves, as well it might in view of his gruesome find. The light was waning, too, and since he had no illuminant with him, he knew he would have to be leaving soon. It was then, at the gathering of twilight, that he thought he saw a faint, twa- a faint trace of luminosity in the crazed angled stone. He had tried to look away from it, but some obscure compulsion drew his eyes back. Was there was there a subtle phosphorescence of radioactive nature about the thing? What was it about the dead man's notes which had had said concerning a shining trapeze, trapezohedron? What anyway was this abandoned layer of cosmic evil? What had been done here? What might still be lurking in the bird-shunned shadows? It seemed now as if an elusive touch of fetter had raised somewhere close by, although its source was not apparent. 
Blake seized at the covering of the long, open box and snapped it down. It moved, it moved easily on its alien hinges and closed completely over the unmistakably glowing stone. At the sharp click of the closing, a soft storing sound seemed to come from the steeple's internal blackness overhead. Above the trapdoor, rats without question. The only living thing to reveal their presence in this cursed pile since he had entered it. Yet, that stirring in the steeple frightened him horribly, so that he plunged almost wildly down the spiral stairs, across the ghoulish nave, into the vaulted basement, and out amidst the gathering dusk of the deserted square, and down the teeming, fear-haunted alleys and avenues of Federal Hill, towards the same central streets and home-like brick sidewalks of the college district. During the day which followed, Blake told no one of his expedition. Instead, he read much in certain books and examined long years of history of newspaper files downtown and worked feverishly at the cryptogram in that leather volume from the cobweb vestry room. The cipher, he saw, was no simple one. And after a long period of endeavor, he felt sure that its language could not be English, Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian, or German. Evidently, he would have to draw upon the deepest wells of his strange intuition. Every evening, the old impulse to gaze westward returned. He saw the black steeple azure amongst the bristling roofs of a distant, half-fabulous world. But now it held a fresh tone of terror with him. He knew the heritage of evil lore and masks, and with the knowledge his vision ran riot in queer new ways. The birds of spring were returning, and as he watched their sunset flights, he fancied they avoid the gaunt lone spire as never before. When a flock of them approached it, he thought they would will and scatter in panic confusion, and he could guess at the wild twitterings which failed to reach him across the intervening miles. It was June that Blake's diary told of his victory over the cryptogram. The text he found was in the dark Anklo language used by certain cults of evil antiquity and known to him in a halting way through previous researches. The diary was strangely reticent about what Blake ciphered. But he was patently awed and disconcerned, disconcerted by his results. Their reference to a haunter in the dark, awake by staring in the shining trapezohedron, and an insane conjecture about the black gulfs of chaos, which it was called. The being is spoken of holding all knowledge and demanding monstrous sacrifices. Some of Blake's entries shew fear less of the thing which he seemed to regard as summoned, stock abroad, though he adds that the street lights form a bulwark, which could not be crossed. Of the shining trapezohedron, he speaks often, calling it a window of all time and space, tracing its history from the old days when it was fashioned on dark Yagoth, before ever the old ones brought it to earth. It was treasured and placed in its curious box by the crinoid things of Antarctica, salvaged from their ruins by the serpent men of Volusa, 
appeared at aeons later in Lemuria by the first human beings. It crossed strange lands and stranger seas and sank with Atlantis before a Minoan fisher meshed it up in his net and sold it to a swarthy merchant from Nighted Klim, the pharaoh Nefrenka built around it a temple with a windowless crypt and did that which caused his name to be stricken from all monuments and records. Then it slept in the ruins of that evil fane which the priests and the old new pharaoh destroyed until the Delver Spade once more brought it forth to curse mankind. Early in July, newspapers oddly supplemented Blake's entries, though in so brief and casual, in a way that only the diary called general attention to their contribution. It appeared that a new fear had been growing on Federal Hill, since a stranger had entered the dreaded church. Oh, who is that? Who could that oh. be? Oh, I oh. heard he was like really good looking and handsome. <laughs> I heard he was shredded. I heard he had an eight pack. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the Italians whispered of unaccustomed uh, stirrings and bumpings and scrapings in the dark windowless steeple and called upon their priests to banish an entity which haunted their dreams. Something they said, was constantly watching at the door to see if it was dark enough to venture forth. Press items mentioned the long-standing local superstitions, but failed to shed light on the earlier background of the horror. It was obvious that the young reporters of today were no antiquarians. In writing of these things in his diary, Blake expressed a curious kind of remorse and talked of the duty of burying the shining trapezohedron and banishing what he had evoked by letting daylight into the hideous jutting spire and at the same time however he displays the dangerous extent of his fascination and emits a morbid logging pervading even his dreams to visit the accursed tower and gaze upon the cosmic secrets of the glowing stone then something in the journal on the morning of july 17th threw the diarist into a formidable fever of horror. It was only a variant of the other half-humorous items about Federal Hill's restlessness, but to Blake, it was somehow very terrible indeed. In the night of a thunderstorm, had put the city's lighting system out of commission for a full hour, and in that black interval, the Italians had nearly gone mad with fright. Those living near the dreaded church had sworn that the thing in the steeple had taken advantage of the street lamp's absence, and gone down into the body of the church, flopping and bumping in a vicious, altogether dreadful way. Towards the last of it, bumped up to the tower where the sounds of shattering glass, it could go wherever the darkness reached, but light would always send it fleeing. When the current blazed on again, there had been a shocking commotion in the tower, for even the feeble lighting, trickling the grime-blackened, louver-boarded windows was too much for the thing. It had bumped and slithered into its trembulous steeple just in time, for a long dose of light would have sent it back into the abyss whence the crazy stranger had called it. During the dark hour of praying, crowds had 
clustered around the church, in the rain with lighted candles and lamps somehow shielded with folded paper and umbrella, a guard of light to save the city from the nightmare that stalks in the darkness. Once those nearest to the church declared, the outer door had rattled hideously. It's like first thing in the morning when your room's still dark and you wake up and you turn on your phone and the brightness is all the way. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) it. Oh my god, every morning, because I have to turn off my alarm. But even this was not the worst. That evening, the bulletin, Blake read, of what the reporters had found. Aroused at last to the rimsical news value of the scare, a pair of them had defied the frantic crowds of Italians and crawled into the church through the cellar window after trying the doors in vain. They had found the dust of the vestibule, of the vestibule, and of the spectral nave plowed up in a singular way, with bits of rotted cushions and satin-pewed lining scattered curiously about. There had been a bad odor everywhere, and here and there there were bits of yellow stains and patches of what looked like charring. Opening the door to the tower, pausing a moment at the suspicion of scraping around, they found the narrow spiral stairs wiped thoroughly clean. The tower itself, a similarly half-swept condition, existed. They spoke of a heptagonal stone pillar and the overturned gothic chair and the bizarre plaster images. Though strangely enough, the metal box and the old mutilated skeleton were not mentioned. What disturbed Blake the most, except for the hints of stains and charrings and bad odors, was the final detail, which explained the crashing glass. Every one of the tower's lancet windows were broken. Two of them had been darkened in a crude and hurried way by the stuffing of satin pew linings and cushions and cushion horsehair into the spaces between the slanting exterior and louver boards. More satin fragments and bunches of horsehair lied scattered about the newly swept floor, as if someone had been interrupted in the act of restoring the tower to absolute blackness of its tightly curtained days. Yellowish stains and charred patches were found on the ladder to the windowless spire, and when a reporter climbed up and opened the horizontally sliding door, a shot and shot a feeble flashlight beam into the black and strangely fetid space, he saw nothing but darkness, and the heterogeneous litter of shapeless fragments near the aperture. The verdict, of course, was charlatry. Someone had played a joke on the superstitious hill dwellers, or else some frantic or else some fanatic had striven to bolster up their fears of their own supposed good. Or perhaps some of the younger and more sophisticated dwellers had staged an elaborate hoax on the outside world. There was an amusing aftermath when the police sent an officer to verify the ports. Three men in succession found ways of evading the assignment, and the fourth went very reluctantly and returned soon without adding to the account given by the reporters. And that's where we're going to end this part. And next part is going to be the final episode. Oh my god. Uh, Ah! So I guess we're going to, I don't know. Do you want to do like a retrospective thing at the end? 
yeah. as a separate thing. Or yeah. just pack it on. Yeah, we'll do it uh, now. Never well, mind. So the story, we only have five and a half pages left of this story. Um, so we would have time for a retrospective. Okay. Because I think or I think we already know what we're gonna say for the most part, so I know, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, so this middle part made the story very interesting. Yeah, I I like it a lot so far. It's, it's spooky. Although, okay, I know the haunter is obviously, you know, trying to get out and whatnot, because, you know, yeah. he's a haunter in the dark. Uh, but what do, what does the little bitch think? Oh, I couldn't get out because of all the lights. Oh, the lights are out. What what if the lights came back on, my dude? What if the day happens? Did yeah. you think the sun went away? <sighs> Maybe, <Okay>. actually. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that could have been it. <laughs> that could have been, he's like, the sun's finally yeah. out. Actually, no, it could have been because uh, electric, I mean, no, there would have been gaslights. Back then, yeah. There would have been gaslights. Yep. yep. I don't know, maybe the haunter is just dumb. <laughs> it's very possible. Like, it knows everything, but, like, it, you know, it still has no common sense, you know? Like, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's book smart, it's not street smart. Yeah. It's got it's all the info in its head. Smart. <laughs> it's got all the info in its head, but it does not know how to use it. Yeah. Or it has all of its info, but it's like a book, so he has to turn to that page to know what it's talking about. <laughs> yeah. And like, he just hasn't got to the point where like lights exist right now. Yeah. He's like, the sun's out, time for my hot girl summer. And then, it's, oh fuck, there's a bunch of people with candles outside. Shit! <laughs> I did not prepare for this contingency. Which also means that that, that, that little bitch wouldn't be able to survive nowadays, because like, I always have some lights on. Well, and even at night, if it, there's strong moonlight. Yeah, like, this this guy, why doesn't he live in, like, the, like not America? Like, just not America. Like, the polar north, or even, the polar like, north? subterranean. Yeah. yeah, just live underground, my dude. Yeah. Yeah. Just hang out but, there for a while. But whatever, like, I'm glad that these reporters are doing the thing that Lovecraft normally does when he talks about people. Yeah, that aren't like middle class people or oh, sorry, rich people. It's just like yeah, they're dumb and shitty. I don't know what they're talking about. They suck. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I can't wait to read the last part, and it's going to be the final episode before we go into oh our new project. Gosh, that's crazy. Um, We've yeah. read so much of this fucking book. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I get. I think we're. <laughs> yeah, I don't have thing. anything else to say. Yeah. Um. Let me do the thing. <clears throat> you are the irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static house like no other. And if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable, and the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
God. I'll fake God, I'll fake God, I'll fake God today. Hop up on a cloud and watch the world.